We're uh, continuing our summer series in the Ten Commandments called the Ten Words. Uh, and today we're on the Seventh Commandment, which I'll read for us in a moment. Um, these Ten Commandments, of course, are the foundation of the moral law of the Old Testament and the ethics of Jesus. And they read, of course, as a list of things you shouldn't do. And I think that has left uh, some, at least I know before I became a Christian and at the end of college, I remember thinking um, this was a bit of a killjoy kind of list, like what was God, why, why this list of things of you shall not, you shall not. But of course, uh, the, the more you grow in the Christian faith, you begin to understand that it's not simply a list of uh, you shoulds or you shouldn'ts, uh, but as you start to understand more of the Bible, you understand that God explains why these things are in place, right? Like any, any attempt to give moral guidance isn't an attempt to just create a checklist of you shoulds, but to articulate a good and true life and what that looks like, right? And in, in the Ten Commandments and the ethics of Jesus, we have God telling us how the world works, how the universe works, how our life works in this world, and if we go against that, it's kind of rubbing against the grain of the universe. And you know when, what happens when you rub against the grain of, of wood, you get splinters, right? Thus the you shall not. So we'll, we'll read those in just a moment. And, and we're also going to read the portion from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus kind of explains uh, what, what, the, what the law means in its fullness. That's in Matthew 5. And he uses these words, you have heard it said, but I tell you. He does that with this seventh commandment. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read from the Bible. Uh, God, please help us as we read Scripture. Please help us as we consider this and think about it. Please pour out your spirit on us. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So the seventh commandment reads very simply, you shall not commit adultery. And then Jesus explains this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Here's what he said. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah. And yes, I will explain and talk about that last part, right? <laughs> Challenging words from Jesus. Uh, J.I. Packer, a kind of well-known author and reformed theologian, has written a little book on the Ten Commandments, which I really like, and, and in it, he makes this confession. When I was young, very young, and first met the text of the, of the Seventh Commandment, I thought, believe it or not, that adultery meant simply a grown-up way of behaving. Adultery. <laughs> Uh, well, indeed, it's uh, an adult issue, right, but not a positive one as much. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, are uh, kind of broken into categories. Some see them as that. The first four deal with our relationship with God, and many say the last six deal with our relationships with one another, though number five there, honor your father and mother, has really more to do with earthly authority. And then the last five have to do with 
in, interpersonal relationships, how we honor each other. And if you remember in that, that honoring one another category, the last five words, the last five commandments, uh, commandment six, or the beginning of that honor one another category is you shall not murder. And we unpacked this a couple weeks ago, that the command prohibits the taking of innocent life and positively commands followers of Jesus to be life-giving people, to be present in this world in a life-giving way with our actions and our words and, and our, our postures. So the first commandment uh, on how to honor one another has to do with uh, um, honoring life. You know, that's how we honor one another primarily. The very next instruction on how we should honor one another is this one we read today. You shall not commit adultery. This command prohibits uh, the misuse of our sexuality and positively commands followers of Jesus to redirect their desires to the Lord from whatever it is that we think we really need or want, right? So the second instruction for how to honor one another is to honor marriage. Now, if you're a single person, please don't tune out. This is the Bible that applies to all of us, married people and single people. I, I realized this week as I was preparing, the last time I preached a message on the seventh commandment exclusively, I was a single guy. It was before Crystal and I were married. And so I remembered how it felt to be trying to preach a message on not committing adultery as a single guy. Uh, I thought that that was very much okay because, you know, I had a pretty good example. The most famous single guy ever had some stuff to say about marriage and human sexuality, Jesus, that is. But if you're here and single today, uh, please don't tune out. And because we don't say it often enough in the church, let me say it out loud. Being single is not a lesser state of life than being married. If you're single, you're not lesser, you're not incomplete, you are not sentenced to the sidelines of life until you're married. And of course, if you're a single person, you know this already. I'm saying this for those of us in the church who forget it and sometimes say things to telegraph our underlying and unbiblical belief that the goal for everyone is marriage. That's just not true, right? So married people, don't say that to single people. Single people, we have to talk about marriage in the church. It's the cornerstone of human society, right? So we can't apologize for needing to talk about that in the church. Scripture is for us all the time. So there's, there's so much to touch upon as, as we think about the seventh commandment. It's really tough to know where to begin. So today we'll do four things. We'll focus on the underlying ache of our hearts as human beings. The command addresses the underlying ache the culture in which we live, how Jesus explained the sixth word, and what we should do about it. So first, the ache. The ache of disconnection. You know, there's this ache in our hearts, and we feel it. I bet you feel it. One author put it this way, we're severed and cut off and disconnected in a thousand ways, and we know it, we feel it, we're aware of it every day. It's, it's the ache of disconnection the ache of relationships not being the way they should be. It's the ache of brokenness, right? Uh, one of the reasons I'm a Christian is because when I was exploring spiritual things, I found that the Bible, better than any other option I found, explains what's really going on in life. And the Bible explains this ache of disconnection. If, if you're newer to it, this comes from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter three, it talks about how the relationship between God and human beings broke. 
how brokenness entered the world. And specifically, that fall from God's grace, from that unbroken relationship, meant four kinds of separation for us. There was separation in our relationship with God. There's a separation in our relationship with others. There's even a separation in our relationship with ourselves. There's a brokenness within. And there's a separation in our relationship with creation. So there's, there's separation now. There's disconnection. There's a disconnect where things were made to be connected. I, I don't know your story specifically. Mine was that I came to faith in Jesus as a senior in college. I know I've said this many times from up here. But I remember distinctly feeling as I was growing up that I was messed up and everybody else was okay. I don't, I don't know if you've had that. As a young person, I had no categories to, uh, to kind of in which to place my experience, if that makes sense. And I remember thinking, man, I wanted to connect better there and it just went wrong. And I don't, and I, you know, I just had this overwhelming sense that I was messed up. I was right. I was and am messed up, but I was wrong in the sense in thinking that I was the only one. We're all in this thing together, right? I know that now. I wish I would have known it then. So if you're younger and you feel like sometimes things don't go right in your friendships or maybe a school friendship or something and you feel like you really did something wrong, all of us have that experience. And Jesus gave us a way to address that to simply, maybe if we did something wrong, to go back and apologize and seek forgiveness, or if we feel like somebody wronged us, to go and talk to them about it and try to reconcile relationships. So you're not the only one. Uh, and I would argue this is readily observable. This reality is readily observable in, in the world. Uh, a Mayan temple is a monument to this reality of disconnect. You know, human beings throughout history have built monuments trying to reconnect heaven and earth because we know the relationship is broken, right? We know there's brokenness. All sorts of religion, all sorts of spirituality that all promise in one way or another to fix that problem, to overcome that sense of disconnect. So that's, that's the ache. Now, enter sex. And it goes without saying that sex is everywhere in our culture, right? You, you need only walk through the checkout line at the grocery store, at Myers. Magazine titles read, 10 things your man wishes you knew. Uh, convince her to fulfill your desires. And it goes on and on. It's everywhere. I mean, you know this. I don't need to say this. We live in a hyper-sexualized culture. No holds barred. Anything goes. If it feels good, do it. Or as the yard sign proclaims, love is love. And therefore, I should be able to do whatever I like, right? Well, yes, you have the, the, the right to do whatever you like sexually, but is that really the question? I mean, is, is the cultural promise of sexual freedom um, accurate? Does it deliver the freedom it promises? See, that's... The truth is that it really doesn't provide that freedom. It doesn't deliver on that promise. What it does deliver, sex used inappropriately, human sexuality expressed outside of the bounds of marriage when there's not a corresponding verbal commitment to parallel the physical commitment, 
uh, that delivers other kinds of feelings, uh, shame, a feeling of being degraded, other forms of spiritual slavery. That's, that's the reality there. It's not that sex is bad. It just was made for a specific context. So the unspoken and often unrecognized message that undergirds our cultural view of sex is that sex will fix that problem, that ache of disconnection that we're all seeking to overcome. And this is a human problem, right? It's not just our culture today. We can look around and say, oh, everything's going to, you know, the hot place in a handbasket. But it, it's a human problem. Says one commentator, quote, there has been no age in human history where we have excelled at controlling our sexual desires. This is just true. The Apostle Paul confronted this in 1 Corinthians. Look at what he said. He, he's, he's parroting back to a population of the church in that day the argument that group made to him. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So, I mean, look at what he said. I mean, first, notice that human nature hasn't changed that much over the years. I have the right to do anything, right? It's just everywhere all the time. Second, let's notice what, what Paul says is the truly important question. He says, yeah, you've got the right to do anything. That's within your power. But the important question is, is it beneficial to you? Will it actually help you? And if you're right in the midst of it, how's it going? Is it working out the way you hoped? Is it delivering on the promises? You have the right to do anything, but is it giving you freedom? Or if truth be told, is it really driving the bus? Is it mastering you? I, um, I served a church in Kuwait City, the National Evangelical Church of Kuwait, the summer between my second and third year in seminary. And a person who helped me kind of arrange the, the whole plan suggested that on my way back, uh, whatever European city I was flying through on the way back, I just spend a week there to kind of debrief and, and unpack. And it was, I'm glad I did that. I took the person's advice. So I ended up spending a week in Amsterdam. And some friends, some new friends from Kuwait had family there, so I visited them. And uh, I see the smiles. You already see where this is going. My, my, um, my friend in Kuwait City said, hey, you probably should walk through the red light district just to have that experience. And he said, when you do, put your backpack on, strap it in the front too, make it tight, stand up tall, walk like you own the place, and are going home. And I said, okay, great, I'll do it. So I did that. Walked through the red light district in Amsterdam. Anybody ever done that? Have you, okay, a couple. Yep. Uh, I just left that experience, I, I left that not saying, man, they're so broken. I left that experience saying, man, we are so broken. So broken. It was overwhelmingly fruitless, just painful. To, like, 
feeding frenzy of consumer sexuality that's so distant from what this whole thing was made to be. Man, we are so broken. What we're looking for is, is connection. And of course, sex alone, outside the context of marriage, will not deliver that. We've been created in the image of God. In the image of God. Now, the Trinitarian God, who exists as three people in one. Permanent, perpetual relationship. The deepest of intimacy. We've been created in that God's image. We were created for intimate relationships. We were designed for relationships, for intimacy, for close, honest, and authentic interaction with God and others. Or, or, or this from Dallas Willard, whom I love as an author. Listen to what he said. Intimacy is a spiritual hunger of the human soul, and we cannot escape it. We keep hammering the sex button in hope that a little intimacy might finally dribble out. In vain. You know, if we're looking for connection and relationship and intimacy, sex alone will never get us there. That's why the seventh word, the seventh commandment, is such a gift to us and so very life-giving. It tells us the truth about who we are and about our sexuality. It tells us the truth about our brokenness and our longings. It tells us the truth about how to really connect with other people in this world and how not to connect with other people in this world that will, that will direct us in the path of greatest life. And Jesus helped us understand the fullness of this. So look again at how he explained it. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now remember the way Jesus explained, you shall not murder. Uh, he, he said anybody who's angry with his brother has basically violated that commandment. And, and we kind of unpacked the idea that Jesus was not talking simply about the emotional experience of anger. He wasn't talking about feeling angry because we don't control when that happens, we don't even control whether that happens. Sometimes we just feel that. What Jesus was talking about was what we do with that feeling. What's the very next thing? What are you doing the next day with that feeling? Are you nurturing it? Are you nursing that grudge because you know you kind of like it and want to just stick it to that person? What Jesus was saying is if you're going down that path, it's like spiritual danger signs. Like wait, stop, no, that is not the path of life. Similarly, what Jesus is talking about here in the seventh commandment uh, it is not about the experience of desire or attraction. When Jesus says uh, the words, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't mean noticing that another human being is attractive. It does not even mean uh, experiencing some level of sexual desire. What it means is camping out there. It's not the first look, it's the lingering look, the evaluating look. It's the not diverting the eyes and moving on to the next thing, it's staying there and wondering. And just like Jesus said, hey, if you take your anger and you nurse it, that's spiritual danger. Jesus is saying, hey, if you experience that desire or attraction for someone other than your spouse, and you're camped out there and you nurse, nurture that, 
that leads nowhere helpful. And, and now, of course, this is super complicated. I, I meet with couples who in premarital counseling, right? And very often have conversations around, hey, we really want to have sex. And my answer is, of course, <laughs> of course, you, yes. If you didn't, I would be concerned, right? But there's, there's a context and there, there's a time that makes it like good and best, right? So the, the Greek word looks lustfully is the word epithumeo. It literally means to long for, covet, lust after, set the heart upon. So again, it's, it's a fanning into flame, that initial experience of, of attraction or desire. Uh, Jen Wilkin, whose book we're using for this series, um, in the sermon titles that is, made this comment. Uh, that, that lustful look is the meditative seeing that leads to objectified desiring that ends in self-justified consuming of that which is off limits and it is as old as the garden. What a great line. She goes on to make the comment that if the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, prohibits us from viewing our neighbor as expendable, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, prohibits us from viewing our neighbor as consumable. That's powerful. And that's why the seventh commandment speaks to pornography, right? Because pornography is the height of kind of consumer sexuality. And it, it, takes, the, it takes the initial look and amplifies all the stuff that Jesus is speaking against here. I, I so remember, um, it's, it's a really old book. Some of you might know it called Reviving Ophelia. Uh, the, the, uh, you know this? Yeah, the author, uh, it's a really good book. There, uh, yeah, it, there's a lot to say. There, one image totally stands out in my mind. The counselor who wrote the book had been counseling a, an adolescent uh, girl, teenage girl, who had these recurring dreams, which were incredibly powerful. And the dream was she was laying in her bed and this old creepy guy with a goat on a leash would show up at the foot of her bed and the goat would begin eating her toes and would be, begin just horrific image, right? She had a recurring nightmare that she was being consumed. Talk about powerful. Any question where that came from? Right. And again, by the way, pornography is addictive. So I, I, know, I know immediately when we start talking about this, it can cause massive amounts of shame, which the initial response is, oop, go into hiding, right? So let's not do that. Let's create a safe place. Find a safe person. If I can be that safe person for you, I'm happy to do that. If others can be, find a safe person and talk about this. We have to. See, consumer sexuality does not deliver on the promises. Uh, it, not only is it just ruled out as bad in general, it's harmful to the consumer. When somebody says, oh, what, is, what does it hurt to look? Oh my goodness, there is volumes of research to answer that question. Volumes of research. Social research from universities, not Christian-based. It hurts the consumer, let alone the one being consumed. And it hurts our society. 
So according to Jesus, what the seventh commandment prohibits is more than just the formal act of adultery, which by the way is sex outside of marriage where one of the partners is married. It, it speaks to something much larger than that. I, I like J.I. Packer on this again. What the words you shall not commit adultery call us to face is first, that sex is for marriage and for marriage only. Second, that marriage must be seen as a relation of lifelong fidelity. Third, that other people's marriages must not be interfered with by sexual intrusion. See, Christians believe that marriage is the place for sex. Christians believe that, that marriage is between one man and one woman and that all other expressions are to be resisted. And Christians believe in chastity before marriage. That is not an outdated, old-fashioned concept. As much as our culture might like to think it is, it, it, it's not just a you shouldn't, but you, you should for all these positive reasons. You should abstain from sex before marriage because if you, if you engage that, there's, there's life taking that goes on in there. I've experienced that. I'd imagine you've experienced that, right? That's true. It's just true. Sex is best in marriage. So Christians believe in chastity. So what do we do? What do you do and what do I do? And we do need to talk about this because of what Jesus said. Look, look at what he said again. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So is the answer self-mutilation? No, it is not. Jesus is not talking, uh, speaking literally here. Though surprisingly, some early church fathers thought he, were, he, he was. Famously, the church father Origen emasculated himself. What? There's a list of famous Christian misunderstandings on this. A, a, a list of early church fathers who, who took the Bible to be sex negative, right, instead of sex positive within the right context. You'll never believe, you will never believe who saved the church from an unbiblical view of sex. Any guesses? Really, shout it out. <laughs> the Puritans. I am not kidding. <laughs> the Puritans showed up and were so committed to the teaching of Scripture they, they kind of reminded the whole larger church that this whole deal came about before the fall. Remember? Marriage is a pre-fall concept. Human sexuality is a pre-fall concept. So in their commitment to Scripture, they came back to a very positive view of human sexuality within the right context. Thank you, Puritans. They get thrown under the bus all the time for the opposite extreme, right? Listen, listen to Dallas Willard again. Of course, being acceptable to God is so important that if cutting off bodily parts could achieve it, one would be wise to cut them off. But so far from suggesting that any advantage could be gained in this way, Jesus' teaching in this passage is exactly the opposite. The deeper question always concerns who you are, not what you did or can do. If you dismember your body to the point where you could never murder or even look hatefully at another, never commit adultery or to even... Uh, uh, or even to look, or, or even look to lust, your heart could still be full of anger, contempt, and obsessive desire for what is wrong. 
no matter how thoroughly stifled or suppressed it may be. And that's, that's the issue right here. Right, what's going on in here? The real problem is our separation from God. That's the root problem. And any disordered sexual desiring is a symptom of that problem, right? But again, what do we do about it? One commentator I read made the point that we in the church think way too often that our, our sexual desires that extend beyond, uh, beyond marriage is something to be managed within this life. And this commentator makes the point that scripture seems to view that differently. Look at Colossians chapter three. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. It doesn't say manage. It doesn't say live with and hope you make it through. The command is to put those things to death, to kill them. Now, you, like me, might be asking, well, how do you do that? I'd be happy to do that if I knew what to do. Um, my experience is it's not a one-time thing, and it certainly is not by the knife of self-mutilation, but by the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. There it is, right there. And here's what God's Word says. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So way beyond just sexual desire and attraction now, any desires that, that emerge more out of our earthly nature than our, our kingdom, you know, child of God nature, are to be put to death. And we do that by learning to delight in the Lord, by learning to desire God above those other things that we're desiring. That's the spiritual transformation work. Says Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Right, the way we put to death the disordered desires of our earthly nature is by learning to delight in God. Or, says Puritan pastor Richard Baxter, learning to delight in God is the work of our lives. That's the work. Learning to be, to be satisfied. Remember what the, the Apostle Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. This is that secret that we can delight in Jesus and understand that in him we have everything that we need. The work of our lives is to co cooperate with the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit within us that is guiding us in taking hold of the life that is really life, right? Uh, to the point where we can say, the Lord is my portion, right? That portion is one of overflowing abundance to the point where we can understand that, that our reward isn't some heavenly treasure. Our reward is Jesus himself. The Lord himself is our reward. And he can be enjoyed right now. And that reward is greater than we can ever ask or imagine. With the Lord's help by the Spirit, our desires can be redirected back to God 
from whatever wayward way they might have been leaning. And that's the work, friends. And we don't do it by trying harder, right? We do it by leaning more and more into Jesus, looking to scripture. So like all the commandments, the seventh word instructs us to avoid the path of lesser life, to honor marriage and human sexuality, and to seek the Lord as the cure to our deeper restlessness. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you for your word. Please help us. Please help us see your goodness in it, your truth in it. Uh, Help us not experience your word just as a checklist of stuff to do, but as the life-giving truth that it is and, and you want it to be for us and in us. So God, help us turn our hearts to you and help us understand how you're speaking to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.